Welcome to the show, everybody. I'm happy you're here. Thank you for joining us on your run or your run to the grocery store or your uh, run to get ready for a date. I'm trying to use run as a common denominator, and I'm running out of ways to use run. But thank you for including us in your daily schedule or your nightly routine. We're happy to keep you company. Another thing I'm really happy about is the fact that we are getting tons of mail. If you want to write me a letter, please do so. Editor at StereoEmbersMagazine.com. We've had a very steady stream of mail lately. Our digital inbox is, uh, is teeming, including this letter from Ian from Connecticut. Ian writes, hey, Alex, I really enjoy the show and your interview style. Oh, thanks, Ian. Uh, he goes on to write, dude, you should host a TED Talk. If you did, what do you think it would be on? Well, Ian, first of all, thank you for writing. And yeah, great suggestion. I'd love to do a TED Talk. I really would. But what would it be on? I don't know. I got to think about that. I mean, it has to be intellectual. It has to be in keeping with the TED brand. So something like live streaming dishonesty, the mythical democracy of the digital age, and the deconstruction of the glorification of commerce. That's a good one. Uh, What about uh, maybe something like from burning down the house to burning man, the iconographical significance of fire as an illusion of desire and romantic longing? Huh? Pretty good, right? Or, uh, I don't know, um, gender, identity, and self-fulfillment, techno-romanticism, and the rise of rock and roll refusal. <laughs> what would that even be about? I have no idea. What am I talking about? I'd like to say, Ian, I would come up with something super intellectual like that. But knowing me, I'd get up there and I would say, welcome to my TED Talk. The topic today, why Mr. Mr. were really rad. I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Analog, I miss the sound When the stars are underground But everyone is famous now Over, over and out Analog, I miss the sound when the stars are underground But everyone is famous now Over, over and out Born in the last century Before the cloud knew anything Before the world was listening All of the time Then you had to know your way back home Without a phone That is the music of my guest today on the program, David Poe. Let me tell you a little bit about David Poe. Well, telling you a little bit about David Poe is kind of impossible. The guy's CV is crammed with cool stuff. So here's what we're going to do for the purpose of time and space. I'm going to have to give you the abbreviated version. There's too much stuff. So I'll do the best I can. I'll give you the highlights. We'll get to the Poe. Just trust me when I say there's a lot more than what I'm telling you. But we're going to do the best we can, okay? All right. David Poe is a singer-songwriter of dazzling economy. His wit and his sly genius for turning a phrase makes each line of his songs a piece of art. He kind of reminds me of a cross between Hemingway and John Prine. He tells stories without telling stories about the stories he's telling. He's straightforward and he's elegant, and he lets you fill in the blanks with where the humanity might reside 
and where the heart might end up. Over the course of albums like God and the Girl, Love is Red, the late album, and his new one, Everyone's Got a Camera, Poe has not only proven himself to be one of the best, but also one of the most consistent singer-songwriters out there. The new album is a staggering collection that's masterfully melodic, harmonically brilliant, and filled with world-weary observations that unflinchingly stare down the crumbling modern landscape. A composer fellow of the Sundance Institute, Poe has asserted himself as one of the great songwriters of his generation. Or any generation, for that matter. And trust me when I say, Poe stays busy. Not only has he toured, collaborated, performed, and recorded with folks like Bob Dylan, T-Bone Burnett, The Jayhawks, Beth Orton, Ron Sexsmith, Regina Spector, They Might Be Giants, and Mark Rebo, Poe has also been heavily involved writing scores for contemporary ballet and modern theater projects across the world. His new album hits shelves this week. I think today or tomorrow or yesterday. It's hitting this week. Just trust me there. But that didn't stop Poe from singing with the Charlotte Symphony this past weekend. What was he doing there? Oh, you know, just performing in the world premiere of the Black Star Symphony, the first orchestral presentation of David Bowie's final album. Like I said, David Poe stays busy, but he wasn't too busy to find time to talk to us. So here we go. Me and David Poe having a conversation right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. My sister had the 45 of Baker Street, which I loved. And I, um, you know, that's one of those interesting songs because, like, first of all, the recording, amazing production. It's got the lovely Gliss, the iconic sax solo. Every musician in that band is, like, killing it in what they do best. You know, the electric guitarist is going like, you know. Sax players is, you know, being amazing. And um, his heathery, beautiful voice. But that tune is about, you know, it's a storyteller song. It's this whole, there's nostalgia to it without being sentimental. And it has an elliptical and non-happy ending. (laughs) So for all of its merit, sonically, it is a fairly a dire affair it says you can't go home again right no it's super it's strangely uplifting while being grim yeah those are my favorites they're yeah zombies oh yeah time of the season maybe is is kind of similar right time of the season and they're they're big hits but also some some other things notable exceptions have got an eerie sensibility to them. The second, I think, second song, maybe it's the first, on um, Odyssey and Oracle, which was sort of their pet sounds, Hmm. was this love song to a a girl that was getting out of prison. 
It's fantastic. I saw them once here at Spaceland. I was seated next to, um, um, oh God, how, how can I forget her name? The, the it girl of the moment she was, Zoe? Zoe Deschanel. Yes. She must have been a huge fan because she and I sang every word. We immediately bonded and I thought things were going to go a completely different direction. And Alex, they did not. She left with her boyfriend. I, I thought that story was going to go somewhere totally different, but it did not. If, if it did, I wouldn't be telling it on the <laughs> Right. We could talk about it at a later date. I, know, I was like, how far is Poe going to go with this story? <laughs> a lot of people ask that at my gigs. Where is this going to go? Uh, but at least you duetted with her in some kind of inadvertent way. Colin Blundstone, who, who must have been a septuagenarian at the time, was an epic voice. I mean, he always had a voice that was this bewitching, airy tenor, perfect falsetto and the rest. And um, yeah, they were, they were, he and Rod Argent were both there and both amazing and they played all those tunes i love the zombies yeah I like theory ones yeah I like rigby you know i like uh, you know black magic woman black magic woman's another one yeah there's others uh, oh how about um house of the rising sun totally yeah <laughs> that's very that song has been through so many lives right that's an eerie song that has a real darkness to it doesn't it like song was you know i should know who wrote that and i'm stupid for not knowing but you know it was a folk song of sorts and it was covered by folkies including dave van ronk then dylan heard it and he put it on his first record a lot of which is covers but neither of them had a hit it was the animals that had the hit with it yeah they just they just it got so it's such an eerie track i mean it really is yeah it's playing pop songs that are a little bit evil <laughs> I, I sort of like that genre on jeopardy <laughs> i think the thing about it is that they are balanced and so much of music is about balance you know because life is about balance and and uh you know it's in music it's words and music it's beat and melody those it seems like the best tunes, you know, there's there's no light without the darkness, right? Right. The contrast, I think, is where all the interesting stuff is found. That's what I like, at least. Do you find that you, I was thinking about like what you were saying about storyteller songs, because you've got a couple of those too, right? I mean, is that is that a narrative style that's appealing to you or do you feel it's restrictive? It can be both, right? I mean, the beautiful songs are, perfect for that because if a story has a beginning middle end and you can tell it in any order that you care to you know chronologically or flashback or whatever given that you know you could have you know three verses and then a chorus to underscore the takeaway the moral to the story they're they're perfectly built to um for that format there's one you have on the album with the drifter on it, the, the late album, right? There is a storyteller song on there. Which, which one is it? I love it. Um, it's, it's right in the middle of the record. Well, anyway, so yeah, you, you've... I think he might be talking about a track called Childbearing. 
Yeah, that one, and also the one about the rock and roll guy. Oh, right. Death Watch for a Living Legend, it's called. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those songs, it seems like another lifetime when I wrote those. There are a lot of them. Do you have this experience? Uh, I have this experience where I feel like a lot of songs I wrote to get to another song. The transitional, which is not to say that they didn't serve a purpose or weren't the best that I was capable of at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, maybe people like them more than what I'm doing now. But I, I, I see these, like, linchpins. You know, it's like no part of the animal is wasted. Yeah. Right, right. You always learn something from writing. Even the bad songs, you learn from writing something to the in those you know that you take into the next um effort yeah but i will say that um i i agree with that and i was reading from my first book of poems like 10 years ago and i was thinking to myself i wish this one wasn't in the book yeah (laughs) so so sometimes they make it onto the album they're in the book but you what can you do they represented a time and a place so Oh, I know, I know that one so well. Fortunately, I, at least, you know, it used to be that like someone else time at least will decide and I can go through all the artists that I love the most really from the last hundred years and be like, you know, well, this one, not that one. And sometimes the best work is often is not the most popular work, the thing that someone gets known for you know well like for example on tim i always thought that uh, dose of thunder was a was a mistake and i always thought that shooting dirty pool on on um pleased to meet me was a mistake i thought i always thought like oh those don't those don't not that they're bad they just didn't seem that they're in keeping with the album but i'm sure at the time it felt like it did i, I mean you're right like time can reveal well, it can also reveal songs that seem like a miss to actually not be a miss at all. So you just don't know, you know? There are those elements, too, of any art making where in, with albums, there are things that went into the sequence of albums in order to either retain listenership or like, oh, God, that last song was heavy. Let's do a fun thing. Shooting Dirty Pool is a great example of that. Just like a down and dirty thing. I'm sure that probably was influenced by like the sequencing of exile on main street or something like that, you know? Um, but, uh, fortunately we don't, we don't have to decide these things. No, no. Were the replacements an important band for you? God, I loved them so much. Um, I loved the replacements. My, my favorite was let it be, which has a kiss cover on it. <laughs> yeah. Black, Black Diamond? Is it? Yeah. Yeah. The, the like most awesome kiss cover maybe ever. Actually, maybe the only good kiss cover ever. Yeah, I would agree with that. I like how that song is on there. And then also like the piano ballad Androgynous is on there as well. Ahead of its time. Oh my God. And then Answering Machine, which is behind it. <laughs> Again, time is the equalizer, isn't it? All songs are about time. Every song is about time. You know, they capture a moment. They're looking back, remembering something. They're looking into the future. They're articulating the now. All songs are about time, ultimately. 
whether they're going forward or backward. You're right. You're right. I've never thought about that before. They're either a snapshot of the past or a glimpse of the future or a hope of the future or a sort of a dispatch of the now. Yeah. And often all three simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Again, verses one, two, and three. But, uh, you know, you take a tune like Over the Rainbow, one of the most distinctly American songs because it's aspirational, right? And, and uh, you know, the, the entirety of, of the verses are about the now. And then, you know, the, the B section is about imagining a place where it will be better. Someday I'll wish upon a star, the part that begins with that section. Right. The rest is a dream from the present. Right. And then the, you can intuit that like wherever they are right now is not as good as they would have hoped it will be. Even without the little dog, you can intuit. <laughs> Even without the little dog. That's so, yeah, you're right. Which makes it like a really hopeful, beautiful song and also sort of a sad song at the same time. It's so distinct. And, you know, the writer of that song, the lyricist, Yip Harburg, a hero of mine here's a guy you know first generation immigrant grows up in brooklyn comes upon the lyrics to hms pinafore the operetta by gilbert and sullivan in the new york public library and is enthralled to it then he goes over to his friend's house his friends are slightly better off they've got a victrola and realizes that these lyrics, which he's now memorized, uh, are part of a musical thing. And this is the beginning of his uh, incursion into the culture. The brothers, by the way, the neighbors with the Victrola family, uh, the Gershwin family, George and Iowa. And he goes on to write, to me, the most iconic song from the Depression, Brother, Can You Spare a Dime? You know, um, Specific to that, and the reason I think it rings like a bell now is because here was uh, this era where everyone felt like the world was on fire. It was dire. Um, There was inflation and corruption and a lot of tumult. And that song, which many sought to have blacklisted, removed, becomes, you know, the song that we all think of when we think of the depression, once I built a railroad made it run. So, and by the way, speaking of being blacklisted, Ia Parberg, who goes on to write over the rainbow and a ton of other great ones was blacklisted later on for being, you know, a, a commie pinko or whatever they called him because he dared to, um, have one of the first racially diverse casts for a Broadway musical. Mm. So we should remember that when we're watching Hamilton. (laughs) Also remember that that anytime someone who's looking forward gets called a socialist. Wow. I feel like there's, I could throw anything at you and I feel you'll know it. (laughs) 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 Sort of like, the no. dean, you're like the dean. I'm so happy that's not true, actually. No, no, I think you're the dean of popular song. Um, do you? But, but I also think that you probably are somebody who is always absorbing 
right? You're you're one of you're it seems like you've you've kept that switch open. Um because I know that like when we were 16 and 17 years old, it was so easy to be thrilled. And then as you get older, you become a little more cynical and you kind of go, ah, I've heard it all, but I don't need to hear the new parquet courts album or whatever, right? But I feel like that you and I are very similar in the sense that um that I still I'm looking to be thrilled. I'm looking, I'm still curious about art um, and about music, especially. So do you, are you one of those people where you're always um, taking it in? You always have that receiver open so you can kind of absorb it all. I hope so, Alex. I mean, I can't imagine the alternative. And the truth is there's so much amazing music. There's so much new amazing music that is being made got dig a little harder in different holes than we used to but there's more great music being made now than maybe ever and if you get bored with that or of doing the archaeology that is necessary to find the cool stuff you can go back into the past with great ease now in a way you know where time has done its curating and um, so much there to discover so I have a little bit of a Towns Van Zant blind spot. I've been meaning to get to him. I know him a little bit. I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't, I haven't taken the dive in and really spent time with him the way I have with like John Prime. Mm-hmm. Um, it just didn't work out that way. I just, I, you know, I was obsessed with other things, and I'm like, I'll get to Towns Van Zant. How do you do? You sort of in your brain, do you think like oh, I know I have a blind spot for I don't know who whoever it may be, and then you have an intention of immersing yourself like you would like taking a Gene Clark class for a semester or something. (laughs) You know, it's funny you mentioned Gene Clark and Towns because here are two of the greats who uh, maybe weren't as recognized as, um, you know, a Prine or Neil Young or Lucinda or whatever in their time. But T-Bone Burnett, who's not just one of the amazing producers and songwriters, um, you know, has recorded their songs on um, both of those uh, records he made with with Robert and Allison, you know? Um, And that's also super valuable, I think. Did you happen to, uh, when an artist will record a song, reimagine it, sometimes it's very modern sounding, sometimes it's a a whole new take. Um, There's a great song by, uh, an Odetta song on their new record, you know, that has been exhumed, you know? Um, I mean, bless him and everyone that does that. And did you happen to see um, the Joni Mitchell Kennedy Center tribute? Yeah. There's a great example, you know, these three or four, you know, amazing female vocalists um, who recognized, you know, Nora Jones was one, Brandy Carlisle was another, and then, uh, you know, uh, Britney's version of, um, of uh, 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 Both Sides Now. Uh, just unbelievable, you know. Uh, I, I think maybe inspired by, uh, you know, Vince Mendoza's arrangement and the record that Larry Klein made with Joni of... He made a record of jazz covers with an orchestra that was gorgeous. And then they did another one, orchestral arrangements, Herbie Hancock involved too, where they revisited all that stuff with her voice as it was then. 
and with her life experience as it was then, um, you know, like Miles Davis would have done. Gene mm-hmm. Clark was always my guy. I always really, um, he was just so sad and tragic. And um, I just, I've always just loved him. And, um, but I'm very aware of the, of the places where I need to educate myself. Um, just like all the great books, right? Like, have you, it's like, you know, have you read every Tolstoy? Have you, but maybe Kerouac was your thing, but you know, there's so much to get to, um, which is exciting because the archaeology never really seems to end. I think this is why shows like yours, I appreciate so much, you know, I mean, you're a, a writer foremost, and clearly you're a curious person. And I can tell um, in the way that you put them to, together, this is not, uh, you know, just eating a Pop-Tart for breakfast, you know, they're <laughs> well-researched, you're uh, curating your guests, you're doing research on, e- on each of them, and then, you know, in your conversations, you're, um, you know, genuinely interested in their perspective, probably biting your tongue sometimes. Hopefully that won't happen today. No, no, no. I've always, I like to think of it all. I think of it all as like one big conversation that everyone kind of just, it's their turn to chip in. It's like the Harlem Globetrotters. Like you do your trick and then you pass the ball to someone else and they do their trick, you know? Um, And they're all great. And I feel like it's all one long conversation that, that we're, that we're having, which is, which to me is really, is really kind of fun. If you sort of think about it like that, you know, we're hopefully we're getting at a, at a truth. I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure if we are, but I hope so. I'm sure the relationship between Metalark Lemon and Curly was similar to that between <laughs> Nick and Keith. They were, the, they were the Jagger and Richards of the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> love the song. I, I think the song live. Love the song. Or the Difford and Tilbrook. I don't know. It just depends what uh, what the thing is there. Um, do you feel that one of the things I love about your body of work is that you are are so versatile and that you you do um so many different kinds of whether from a from a compositional perspective like we're saying storytelling or first person confessional or the list goes on and also stylistically there's so many different there's a crooning number there's a rock number like you're all you're all over the place and with equal aptitude which is not easy for a lot of people um is that a conscious thing or does it just it just comes out that way or do you kind of go like oh i'm gonna write a torch number here or whatever it might be well uh stylistically um you know i have predecessors in that area i mean yip harberg is one paul mccartney is another um who and prince is another good example there's a, a lot of folks who have done that not just by like gradations in their career like oh i used to rock and then i went disco and now i'm singing the american songbook but uh you know a record like revolver or something taxman into eleanor rigby into the sitar song there's horns it winds up with the void you know tomorrow never knows so um i i always took that to be a good thing you know yeah listening to you know, Tommy or whatever. And I think I was also influenced by my sister's record collection at a 
certain period. She had eclectic tastes, and so I didn't really think about it. As a writer, I think that the uh, tone of the song, either harmonically or the lyric, can help predict where it's going to go in terms of, you know, what other players are on it or what kind of song it is. Like I heard, I was thinking about You're the Bomb the other day, and I thought, if Michael Bublé got a hold of You're the Bomb, <laughs> you, really should. you could buy a really big house. <laughs> or at least pay the rent. <laughs> I mean, it seems like you're like, is that, is that a, a, an idea of writing songs that other people can sing? Has that, has that appealed to you as well? It's all I think about, really. Uh, or a better way might be to say, to write a song that anyone could sing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, one of the guys that kind of informed my thinking there in a different way was Mark Rebo, who, when I first, who was an amazing um, guitar player. Um, your listeners will know him from Tom Waits' work and uh, Elvis Costello, um, the Robert Nallison records aforementioned, but many, many others. But his own work, which is what I came to first, was this very. Uh, beautiful and angular, specifically unique, uh, sort of, uh, you know, downtown jazz, for lack of a better term. It's, it's kind of a stupid way to paint it, but that's how it was known at the time. Um, and it seemed like he would play amazing guitar on a lot of big records, whatever was required by the song. Sometimes you would hear his spirit and be like, oh, that's Mark Rebo. Sometimes you would not. But then he made a lot of records that would not probably be as well known and that were really specific, equally great, mind you. Um, and it seemed like one thing fueled the other. So for me, I think always about like writing a song that anyone can sing with the, the idea that like hopefully anyone will sing it, hopefully Buble or whoever. Yeah. Uh, we'll sing them just so more people hear them. And then I do all the weird ones that no one else wants. <laughs> <laughs> That's my records. <laughs> is, there, is there a way to bring your stuff to certain people? Like, what if you, if you wrote a song and you're like, that would be perfect for so-and-so? Is that something that you would like try to get it to them? Or is that, do you feel that's out of your hands? I've, I've had great luck in that area. I don't have a methodology for it. It just seems to have turned out that way. I've had amazing collaborators co-written with a lot of people of note, which is, you know, a, a slightly different muscle, but wonderful. And then I've gotten to work on films and dances and write for television, which is yet another thing because you're writing for a certain occasion, a certain kind of movement. Um, sometimes even for a certain amount of time. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I count myself very lucky in that. And that's, you know, another reason why I've kept learning and, and checking things out because, you, you know, each of these people has a different agenda. When I'm working with someone, I always look at um, co-writing with someone. When I'm co-writing with someone, I always look at what they have done and, and then what they have not. Mm, that's interesting. I mean, have you co-written with someone where you went, 
Oh, that's like you get a little glimpse into the process where it kind of informs, like it can almost teach you something about the craft that you hadn't thought about. Oh, I, I learned. Yeah. I mean, I learned so much in each of those sessions, each of them, you know, I remember doing, um, a co-write with an artist who goes by the name O Land, Nana Fabricius, extremely gifted, uh, beautiful writer. Um, I think that she would call herself a pop musician, but extremely arty, uh, has a dance background, sings like a bird, great gift for melody, um, a rhythmical gift as well. And we, you know, she was making a pop record. We were writing some pop songs. And I said to her at one point, let's do one that your parents will like. (laughs) As a joke, sort of. But what I meant was something kind of more traditional. And um, we wrote uh, uh, what I think is one of the beautiful songs on the record. It's probably like the second to last song on the record, which is the one you know is always either the outlier or the one no one listens to sometimes it's the weakest song not always sometimes and um you know it was the one where i went to see her a few times on that tour the record that we did in the studio which was just acoustic guitar and vocal wound up on the record i thought that they would put strings on it or something but they didn't and that was the one where, you know, she played it, you know, in the encore or whatever. It was like, okay, if you still want to hear me, we're going to do one for us. And that's when all the phones came out in lieu of lighters and started to dance in the air. I learned a lot from all these collaborations. It's kind of my main thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and how do those come about? I mean, are those just, how are they pretty organic in the sense that like you bump into somebody or someone knows somebody or, is it directed by the record company like or is it all of those things it is all of those things and if if i knew a better methodology to make it happen i would i would probably do more of it um i mean i'm a big believer i love producing records but i'm a big believer in knowing how the song goes first in other words, having the words and melody and key and tempo, mm. uh, you know, something that could be played on piano or guitar before it goes into the studio. Um, and I realize that that is, uh, I mean, that's not the only way to do it, obviously. But that idea of like, let's get the words right and let's make sure the melody is right and all those things is, is kind of lost if you, you know, are top lining to a dope loop that's a different affair yeah and and i'm not suggesting that that's not cool and and also i've done that too and it's super fun especially for the rhythmic aspects it's really wonderful for that um because the you know the beat informs the vocal such a deep way but uh i guess i'm more of a traditionalist in that sense I was looking at your at your biography, which you sent over, and I'll which I'll cover in the introduction to this program. But because there's so much, and there's so much great stuff that I didn't even know about. Um, but I was thinking, like, what's the common denominator um, with with your life experience, with all the stuff that you've done? I was thinking about it a lot, 
And I think what it speaks to is the common denominator is, and you tell me if I'm wrong, is that you are an open person. Like it seems like you are your game for um, an experience, right? So like your your because your collaborations are not just with in the David Pope pocket. They're all they're really all over the place. Um, by the way, I want you to write a, your memoir. Should be called "Squatting in a Mansion." <laughs> <laughs> about that one. <laughs> It's a chapter, my friend. It's a ch- or, or a chapter of a much bigger book. Um, but you're you seem like a very open person. It doesn't seem that there's judgment. You're not one of those people who gets in your own way. To borrow that cliched expression, um, I'm not asking you to psychoanalyze yourself, but maybe just a little bit. <laughs> uh... But there is a, there is a willingness to go down corridors that may be not corridors that that you even would want to go down, but you go down anyway. And that seems like the common denominator, which is why you have this rich um, field of experience. Um, anyway, long question, David, but. That's so nice. That's so nice. I, and so thoughtful, Alex. I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, the common denominator is probably words and melody, but specifically, um, I think starting in rock and roll was a good thing for me. Um, Rock and roll was helpful in the culture because it taught a lot of people how to be cool. Mm. What is cool? Subjective. My definition is good taste plus acceptance, being open-minded about other people you know, and the diversity of the human experience. I mean, every day in the news, we see why accepting others is increasingly important. Um, But it's also good taste. And taste is also important because taste is an expression of discernment. You know, they say, uh, you know, oh, let the people like what they like, Uh, which I understand. But does that include drivel? I mean, that is the stuff that dumbs you down. It makes us easily duped. It makes people fall for conspiracy theories and televangelists and junk science. And the problem with it is a culture that is unable to tell, for instance, the difference between a good song and a bad song or between art and performance art or discern performance art from politics, that is a culture that will soon find itself unable to tell the difference between right and wrong. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, rock and roll. Rock rock and roll. roll. You know, which is different. You know, it's rock and roll in a lot of ways is the music of losers. And I prefer that. I prefer the music of the losers and the underdogs you know, the poets and the traveling artists and the troubadours, you know. I prefer that to the music of narcissists and people who celebrate riches and misogyny or songs written by the children of millionaires. But that's just me. I think you can hear Minneapolis in those first couple of replacements records. You can hear their, I don't know why I'm so obsessed with them today, but but they're so scrappy. You can just hear it. In your music, can you hear the geography of where you were at the time 
Um, because your home state, you were telling me, is, is it Iowa? Uh, no, uh, Heartland, but uh, born in Ann Arbor, raised up in Dayton, escaped oh. to New York. Escaped to New York. Yeah. Can you hear for the music that you've made, when you look at your albums, can you hear where you were geographically? What a cool question. I, th I mean, I can, I don't know if anyone else would. I mean, the geography is tends, I tend to associate that with where I was in my life and my progress. And with each city um, and experience comes you know, m more input, more stimulus that then informs the work itself. And I mean that very specifically, like, you know, if you grow up on a steady diet of, you know, FM radio, rock and roll and R&B, as I did, and then you start to learn some other stuff by singing in a gospel choir, as I did, doing some musical theater, as I did. And then I go to New York and I see people like, you know, Rebo on one side and, uh, you know, a bunch of, uh, you know, weird experimental theater on the other. I see Patti Smith on playing on New Year's Eve. I see people like, you know, Soul Coughing and Skeleton Key and Lisa Loeb and Jeff Buckley and Chris Whitley getting record deals. Each of these things pushes the edges of the continuum out further in terms of what is acceptable or possible. And so where I started in, you know, the subset of, you know, rock and roll R&B, the corners of that kind of wide out as well. You know, it's sort of like learning new chords on guitar. You know, you learn with the cowboy chords, but then when you learn that there's more harmonies behind major, besides major and minor thirds, then you're like, oh, I could do this, I could do that. You know, when you escaped to New York, was there uh, was it a post college escape, or did you did you take that route? And how how did it feel in terms of um, in the category of bravery? Did it was there a little bit? Were you nervous about that escape? that escape route? I was more excited than nervous. And it, and um, I, I shouldn't characterize it as an escape. I, I love my hometown. I love my family. I had wonderful experiences um, that enabled my departure. I played in a cover band that became, for reasons nobody st can still tell me, but we became wildly popular and we won 10 free hours of recording time in a local talent competition and went into a real recording studio owned by the son of, God, of the guy that held the patent on the pop top. And we made a single of two songs that I wrote um, and the single got on the radio. I remember hearing the first time I heard myself on the radio, the song was sandwiched in between Rebel Rebel by David Bowie and Hey Jude by the Beatles. <laughs> I can tell you, there is just nothing better than, than for that to happen to you, uh, you know, when you're a senior in high school. After that, all things seem possible. Yeah, that's not too shabby. It was fantastic, and it still is. Every time I, I hear stuff on the radio, it, it's it's just it's just a thrill. Um, so you know, I had done stuff before I went to New York, but yeah, I mean, New York blows everyone's mind, especially when you're twenty. Um, 
and yeah, I, I went to, you know, pretty soon after school was over, I um, set out to find my fortune. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the Skeleton Key. I remember that band. Um, they were great. Yeah, they were so great. Stuff. Chris Maxwell, the guitar player, is still just, I just heard him, um, a new record that he put out. It's gorgeous. You know, those guys are all super talented. They were great. And supposedly a really great live band. I never saw them out here. But um, did you make friends pretty quickly in New York? I did. But again, I was so lucky, dumb luck, really. Um, you know, my band had played there once at CB's Gallery. And the first night I was there, I just went out walking, not knowing where I was going. You know, it was like that, the bridge of living for the city by Stevie Wonder. You know, New York City, skyscrapers and everything, except I didn't get arrested. Um, <laughs> but I wound up, you know, things started to get kind of dark. And then I noticed I was on the Bowery and I was like, oh, wait, Bowery equals bad. But then sure enough, I saw CBGB and I just walked in there. And uh, that's where I spent the next several years until I got a deal uh, running sound at CB's. And it became sort of the linchpin for a lot of people that I met, great friends that I made. And, you know, you run sound for five bands a night. You start to understand what's happening and how, how people do things, which I think was really important to me. You know, like just the nuts and bolts of it. You know, you start to be like, oh, I should, I should buy a tuner, <laughs> you know, um, you know, oh, this drummer who plays with these five bands, you know, is killing it. I should ask him if he wants to play with me, you know, um, that kind of, and you start to see what doesn't work. You start to get bored by the people that play the same thing every time. That was a big lesson that I learned there. You know, I've always changed up my sets. Maybe the biggest lesson was uh, that the people that I liked always had new material. And they would play, you know, they would always play a few things, crowd pleasers, things that were known, but even the people that were, you know, three, four, five records in, um, who had established hits or at least the iconic songs in their catalog were constantly introducing new material. And so the, the emphasis on that was something that I, that I took away. Um, there's nothing wrong. I mean, if I had had a string of hits, then I suppose I'd be playing them or I'd be doing one of those retrospective tours. But in a way, it's extremely freeing that I don't feel beholden to those things, except for, you know, I don't have to continue playing a song that I wrote back then. And believe me, that's for the best. What, what was the name <laughs> of, your, of your band, your hometown band? What was, what was the name of that band? There were several. The one that played... Um, that played at CB's was called Glee and Beak. It was an acoustic duo, sometimes trio, that was sort of like Simon and Garfunkel meets Yes. Mm. Like two-part harmonies, but like this very, very lofty, uh, you know, rock operas and, and such. Uh, we had some fun with it. Yeah, I, I bet you did. We really uh, did. That was actually the first band that took me to uh, Minneapolis, where I've worked a lot. You mentioned Minneapolis earlier. Um, done a lot of stuff there. I have a lot of 
great friends there and great have had great gigs. But that uh, we opened for a band called Trip Shakespeare. I remember that. Uh, yeah, that was the the band that um, a couple of the guys became Semisonic. Yeah, closing time. Dan Wilson, the writer of that song, was and his brother Matt um, were in that band. So that was the first time I went to the Twin Cities and have gone many times since then, especially working with my friend Craig Jarrett Johnson, who was in Golden Smog and, mm. and uh, Run Westy Run, one of the seminal SST bands. Peter Buck produced one of their records. I think Grant Hart produced another one of their records, guy from Husker Du. So, yeah. Yeah, Run Westy Run. They had that song, Heaven's Not So Far Away. Man, I think about that song a lot. That's such a great song. They were They were one of those um sst bands i love them um check out the record that i made with craig jarrett johnson um and uh and other people of note including the late great ed ackerson mm. uh, but that's one of the things that i think i'm the most proud of it's a great rock record uh, great songwriting we had a lot of fun on on that one and it's to me distinctly a minneapolis rock record not just made there but that spirit and trip shakespeare were they were really peculiar for the time they were sort of like operatic and sort of like adorably geeky in the right ways like i really liked them they were such an unusual band i think they were even signed to like a and f at the time i think yep which is great ingenious writing beautiful three-part harmonies yeah innovative arrangements a lot of uh you know like what it would have sounded like if instead of gene clark robert frost had been a member of the band. <laughs> yeah that actually makes or, sense or Sandberg, maybe i don't know yeah yeah they were a very strange um band in, in all the right ways did your parents check in on you in a way like hey you good are you like were they supportive of of you making the move to the city uh, of New York and um, and were they, did you feel that you, they were in your corner the whole time that you, that you, those early years? They were always supportive. Um, they, they are lovely um, people. Uh, both of them are um, educators. Uh, they were both also uh, activists, advocates for uh, the arts, uh, as well as civil rights, opportunity for all, education especially. So um, as I probably reminded them too many times, the fact that I had chosen to do what I did was uh, because of them. <laughs> um, not just because they facilitated it, but also because you know they imbued some idea of having a responsibility to the culture, giving something back to the community, that kind of stuff. But they were always uh, loving and supportive, and you know there was success there. You know it wasn't like uh, you know someone should tell David to give up on his dream. You know we had, um, I mean the story my dad loves to tell was um the first time we ever sold out a show you know and this gives you an idea of how much things have changed but you know as 17 we had a song on the radio we played this old roadhouse that had a night called drink and drown <laughs> you would pay two dollars 
which is also an old school thing. People used to pay for music. You see, Alex, this is before you were born. Anyway, <laughs> people would plop down their two bucks. You could drink as much as you want. And we were the band. We played four sets a night. And at the end, each of the $2, one would go to the house, one would go to the band. So after one of these gigs, you know, at the time I had a, a paper route, I held onto it probably a little bit longer than most kids did because it paid for my music habit. And uh, I came home with a thousand one dollar bills in my pocket. It's a Sunday morning. It's when the papers are biggest, you know, they're full of the comic sections and all of the thing. Again, old school story. Just so you know, newspapers are these <laughs> how people used to get their news. They were printed on paper, which is a very thin strip of tree. <laughs> I'm with you. I remember. So that day, I, you know, I, I, my dog and I always delivered the newspapers. We uh, we did so. Um, and then I called the newspaper and quit and took the thousand dollars. It was burning a hole in my pocket and went down to Ace Music and bought a red Telecaster. Mm. <laughs> there was success there. Um, you know, people liked it and people were supportive. I don't know if we were any good, but you know, it was a bunch of young kids playing uh, a bunch of, you know, 60s covers and started to write their own songs. So it seemed more possible then. I guess people talk a lot about access now and how, you know, you can throw your stuff up there through an aggregator and get on Spotify or, um, you know, put it on Bandcamp or whatever. And I love that stuff. And I love the fact that you can make a record in your house. But, um, you know, there's a song uploaded every 1.4 seconds, I think. Oof, wow. And Spotify pays 0.003 cents per stream. And radio still doesn't pay artists anything at all. So, you know, I don't know. I, I appreciate that access. It would have been a lot different. It certainly is a lot easier to make a meme and put it on Instagram than it was what we used to do, which was go to you know, print up posters and we paste them to telephone poles. <laughs> I'm not sure that it's any easier than it ever has been, despite the supposed increased access.
Yeah, and from a purely vocational financial position where you think like even a hit single isn't going to yield any money on Spotify, right? There's that story like Ella Block tells that story where like his song was streamed like 20 million times. He made like $1,300. The numbers, I'm not getting them right, but it's the point is made. Um, it wasn't a lot. Um, so really the, the bread and the butter of the job now is really in the live performance, right? Isn't that like where the um, survival is most crucial? Uh, that was a theory posited 15 years ago. Um, and fairly well um, dispelled by COVID. Mm. Um, it, you know, yeah, you can make some money playing live, uh, maybe. Um, you know, gas prices are not going to change. Or, sorry, gas cover charges are not going to change. Gas prices are, you know. So, you know, uh, what does it cost to rent a van and you know do a run from seattle down to san diego and you know do the 200 tickets that you sell for somewhere between 10 and 50 bucks offset those costs you know um that's the part that i don't know and moreover live music was never intended to be a substitute for whatever you can make off of recorded music mm -hmm. these are two separate streams because they're two completely different things so this notion of like give one away for free so that you can make something in the other thing may or may not work um i haven't seen data that suggests that works for everybody i've mm. seen that it works for some very very well um but for most not and that's where i'm coming from all the time it's just like you know, I don't like talking about money. Um, I don't like complaining about it, but I, I'm concerned about, you know, the next generation of artists and what they're able to do because they're awesome. You know, I write songs with a ton of 20 year olds and these are amazing, super bright people, probably musically, probably the most virtuosic generation, or at the very least the most in tune generation of singers that I've ever heard, you know, producers, just amazing producers, you know, that have like grown up with computers and so they're completely undaunted by new apps and new ideas. They put things together really, really well. So there's no reason to think that this isn't going to get better, um, but it is what I've kind of written my last record about. Even beyond that, uh, you know, uh, well, I'm talking too much, but I will say this. I, I think that we are still grappling with what the world looks like when anyone anywhere can say anything to everyone with the touch of a button. Mm -hmm. That's what the new record is about. Um, thematically, it really, it's sort of like it's a song cycle about those about that sort of subject matter aspects of it yeah mm. i tried to walk all the way around it it's called everyone's got a camera there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it and how does it feel because when you know 
to sort of to have that record in your pocket, like it's done, right? It's all, it's, I mean, it's ready to go. Um, that must feel like such a powerful position, like, and, and so nice to sort of have that in the queue done. I'm, um, I'm working on the next. Wow. And um, also doing a, a couple other things. Um, one of the things I'm really excited about is I'm doing a collaboration with the Los Angeles Dance Project for a live show that's going to be uh, in December in Doha, in Qatar, Qatar. Um, during the, uh, there's some big sports event happening there, World Cup, I guess. So we're doing a dance and music thing at the um, Museum of Islamic Art, a building designed by IMP there, um, and other stuff. You know, there's a, I got a tour coming up in October and lots of other things. But uh, yeah, def- definitely looking ahead to the next. You know. Yeah, to, to the Middle East. I mean, yeah. <laughs> have you been there before? I have. Um, uh, I've been to Jordan and Israel and Palestine. I've been as far north in Israel up to like the borders of Syria and, and Lebanon, um, but not extensively, no. I mean, most of my travel abroad has been in Asia and Europe. So I'm super excited to, to go there. Yeah, what, a, what an interesting experience. How did that project come about? How did that collaboration um, germinate? I've done a few other scores for dance. Um, I did a thing with Cedar Lake Contemporary Ballet in the city uh, about 10 years ago, I guess. And um, I did another thing with the the group called Palabolas, which is, you may not have heard of them, but you'll know this when I describe it. They they do these dances that are, um, there'll be a screen with an enormous light behind it. And the dancers dance in shadow. Oh. You know what I'm talking about? I know about. exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Is a roll in from the sides of the screen and then they morph their bodies yeah. together to build an elephant or a car or whatever. So I had scored this piece called Shadowland for them, um, premiered in 2009. And, uh, you know, we were just trying to make a cool thing. And it became this international hit. You know, um, they found me because I think I had done the Sundance experience and they were looking for someone who could do film music and electronic music and like singer songwriter and pop songs and stuff like that um, to sort of tell the narrative of the story because there wasn't any dialogue, no text. So that was super fun. So I, you know, and I love dance and, and dancers and choreographers. So. That's kind of what led me to this one. When that became a hit, were you like, "Holy cow!" <laughs> like, did that, at least did it surprise you that it that it was such a that it that it landed the way it landed? It did because it was so weird, right? You know, but it was well weird. I mean, it was unique, and uh, you know, the, it premiered in Madrid, and the mayor came, and everyone clapped, and. I was like, okay, well, that's very nice. That's a dance premiere. Then the reviews came out. The next day, lines were on the block. Then they went to St. Petersburg, <laughs> lines were on the block. They were on tour for 10 years. What? 
They won, yeah, they won, you know, like the Lunas del Auditorio Awards, like a Mexican Oscar. They did a command performance for the Queen. Um, it just, uh, you know, and the entire show is about, you know, a young uh, female who gets turned into a dog uh, or sort of a dog girl hybrid and you know mad capillarity ensues it's a coming of age story but um <laughs> it, it is really yeah back to dorothy in a way yeah but you know i mean not i mean even just explaining it it sounds insane and it is but um but the very uh gettable populist and uh and people really liked it and of course a ton of other people have ripped off that that approach since then when you because i know you worked with t-bone really early on in your career and it and it seems like it seems like the people that you worked with early on you still know it's commendable to um maintain friendships both professional and personal um is that i would imagine that you're you're a good friend to people because it seems to me that um in this business um and also in life, I mean, life, the business of life, that people sort of dispense with people and move on, um, which seems so heartless when you're even putting it that way. But anyway, I'm asking you to to to, uh, to assess whether or not you're a good friend, but you seem like a nice guy. And you seem like that you really are good at maintaining communication and friendships with people, which I think is really nice. I tried. I try. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think of my best friends we have great candor for each other we pay each other the respect of of our candor um in recent years many of us have had to agree to disagree uh and in recent years to your earlier point i think i have had to let some people go because they were just deal breakers in their sensibilities um, and uh, yeah, that, that is heartbreaking, but you know, I, I, like, I mean, it's great to play music because you can get out there and you can see people that, you know, in every town and you sort of have a reason to like, keep reconnecting with, uh, old friends and, uh, and making new friends, you know? That's arguably one of the best, or at least the most sociable parts of the gig, you know. Um, and also, in, in my case, to be able to see, you know, different parts of the world that I probably never would have. Right. You know. Um, yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I was just thinking, not to go on and on. Although I suppose that's the point of doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, the original name of the show is please go on and on. <laughs> I was thinking, um, it, you know, the, the two, I love art museums. Um, and I actually take a fair amount of inspiration from other art forms besides music or as well as music. Mm -hmm. And I had t two, experiences in art museums that were super informative to the writing of this record. The first one was long time ago. Um, it was either in 1999 or 2000, the Whitney Museum in New York ran 
uh, a year-long show about 20th century art. And the first six months of the year were about 1900 through 1950, second six months about the rest. Uh, I went to both, but the most informative thing by far was the first half of the century. I saw proto-cubism and collage and commie art, you know, all of the stuff that I didn't really think existed, uh, you know, right after the 19th century, you know, and through the war. It looked like the future. It looked more like the second half of the century. And thematically, there was equity, environmentalism, civil rights, all of these things that I didn't, I wasn't aware that was happening, that that stuff was uh, being talked about in, you know, the olden days. And then I was like, oh, of course it was, because they were all artists. Mm. The artists are always out in front. They, they just are. You know, because of, to your point, who they hang out with, how they navigate the world, and of course, the sense of innate humanity and justice that most artists have. The second thing that informed the record was when I was at the Tate Modern in London. And again, this is a while back, but the exhibit uh, was about when photography became ubiquitous and how painters who you know up in that point were um, of value because they can make a realistic painting became uh you know not, not extinct exactly but of less value maybe passe why you know why pose for an oil painting when you could get your picture taken cheaper in a second and that period was the handoff to what became modern art you know from uh you, you know modern art in the sense that artists became unfettered from realism so picasso by a frida kahlo matisse beautiful you know i think where this echoes in the present you could compare that to drum machines replacing drummers or the move now to make music with AI, you know, which is a big, a big thing. So there's a trade-off and, uh, you know, the, the, the guy making bespoke horse and buggy whips, you know, uh, you know, who's Henry Ford's neighbor, you know, um, you know, is going to have to uh, pivot, as one of the startup guys would say. In the arts, some of this stuff goes unnoticed. Um, you know, there are people who don't care or they haven't been educated about the human element of art making, so they won't, wouldn't probably notice a difference. They'll just see a picture or they'll hear a beat or see a CG character or a robot dancing or what have you. But I, I'm not against dancing robots <laughs> you know I, i'm mostly a fan of technology uh you know except when it's abused and that's the period we're in right now with monopolists and spotify refusing to pay the workers and make the primary offering musicians but we have every reason to believe that that will change yeah 
So that's what I was trying to write to on the record is, you know, to, to try to be like those artists that I saw forward looking, um, you know, to write about the now with an eye on the future using, you know, some of the history, um, you know, in that sense, I think of it as a transitional record more than something that's more, um, like my last record or the one that, that I'm sending out to make now, which, you know, less of a lens on those things. I'm relieved to hear you're not against dancing robots. <laughs> you had to be mind, my friend. I was very worried for a minute, David. <laughs> I thought, oh, this is going dark. Um, but I, I'm curious about your, your daily process because it seems to me like you've always got your line in the water. You know, you're always, you're always sort of, um, again, your, 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 your openness as a person also translates to being as an artist as well, where are you thinking about songwriting every day? Do you pick up the guitar every day? Is your discipline at one that is pretty regimented or is it more freeform? Yes. I would say I am fairly regimented. Mm. Um, you know, I, I, there are peaks and valleys to be sure. But um, when I'm in process, which at this point is nearly every day, uh, yes, uh, definitely, definitely writing every day and playing most days um, or recording. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I have a very simple approach to this thing, and I've said this before, but... Uh, my thing is, I mean, you're a writer, so I'm sure you've got your process, and I'm curious to hear about that. My approach is wake up, get up, chug a pint of water, because, you know, after you've been sleeping, you're dehydrated, so the water actually wakes you up better than coffee. Then I make coffee. <laughs> and then I go, uh, you know, and I've done this for years. I, I go to wherever is the quietest or most private. Now I've got a little garden um, and I just start writing until I don't. I mean, that's what I do. And, um, you know, you, you have to have the time to think. <clears throat> you have to have the time to be away from a screen increasingly mm -hmm. so i'm kind of a pencil and paper kind of person me too um but not not wholly you know and when i travel i'm you know tapping things out like everybody else um but i, I do that and, and sort of let it stream out with the understanding that i'll come back to it later and hopefully improve prune exhume you know, uh, find the happy accidents. You know, sometimes, you know, you, you, you write from, from, you know, 7 a.m. to noon and you only get one line. Right. Um, great. You know, like to me, that's a complete triumph. And sometimes you get, you know, at least a song, if not another one. Sometimes you write a stupid song in order to write the good one, which comes quickly on the heels of it. Sometimes there's a little bit of melody that comes or you're reminded of something that you wrote in the past that's been abandoned that you can <clears throat> apply to a new idea. 
Um, so yeah, did you say line in the water? Yeah, like like a fisherman. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm vegan, but me too. I'll but I'll keep I'll keep the line in the water. I'll keep my hand in the water. How about I'm that? I'm a vegan as well, and I stole that line in the water uh, from just, Tom Waits because uh, Tom Waits said. He said, just because you don't, you don't have your line in the water doesn't mean you're not thinking about fishing. <laughs> God, he's the best. Okay, here's my writing process. Uh, yes. I stay up really late at somewhere around three in the morning. I scribble a bunch of stuff and I go, that was brilliant. And then I go to bed and I wake up in the morning and I go, what does that say? <laughs> right, right. I, I, don't know, I don't know what I wrote. Um, it's not a very... I, I think I would benefit from a more regimented process like like you're talking about. I think there if you if you have a sort of a, a ritual around it, um, I feel that you will get better because I think because you're doing it on a daily basis. And I think that that's, um, you know, the sort of the repetition. It's like shoot, it's like shooting free throws, right? You're not you just have to keep you just stand in the backyard and shoot a billion free throws. And then your money every, mostly every time. Um, so I think that doing the work makes the work better. I just, it's not a very um, eloquent way to put it, but I do think that's true. I think that's perfect, actually. I think it's, I think it's perfect. And, and to that, I would add uh, two things. Uh, number one, the more that you write, the less precious you need be about anything. You don't have to keep revising or polishing some idea that you put up on a pedestal. I mean, apparently that worked for Leonard Cohen, but most writers I know are like far better if they like write 10 and choose the best one. And second of all, you know, this is something that anyone can start at any time and you don't have to be a songwriter or even a writer. Taking the time to collect your thoughts, to think is something that is not promoted in the age of FOMO pop or Twitter or what have you. It's all hot takes, instant reactions, how quick can the retort be, and so on. There's merit to those things. I mean, I loved it when, you know, Bill Buckley debated Noam Chomsky. Hmm. But um, far better to take the time, and again, especially away from a screen, to take the time to just think and even though it will look to everyone else like you're staring into space you're actually working yeah yeah it's true although there's something about a musician with a guitar sitting down on a bench somewhere working something out is far more attractive i find than a writer in a cafe with a pen i think you've got you've got the advantage over me that's true. Although we get thrown out of the cafes until it's time for sound check. That's true. That's true. Yeah. I do think that I've become better at knowing when I'm full of shit, when I'm writing where I'm like 20 years ago, I would have, I would have gone with that. And I'm not pulling threads that I know aren't going to lead. They're familiar threads. At least I know they're going to lead nowhere. I'm better at discerning when those show up and I'm better at ignoring those. I won't pull those. I want to pull different ones now. Yeah. Good for you. Yeah. yeah. And you get better at like looking at a paragraph and turning it into a sentence or looking at a sentence and turning it into a hook or looking at a feeling and turning it into something attached to a simile so that it's not a diary entry. But it's right. an actual astute comment on the world that other people can relate to instead That's of right. with you. 
Now, what are you working on now? What are you writing? <laughs> so I'm working on a, I'm working on a, on a, on two, a, a novel and a novella and, a, and also a bunch of poems. I'm trying to write the sequel to the, to the book of poems. So, but things are, there are days things move quickly and other days, you know, I'm watching Gilmore girls in Russian, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so at least you're working on your translation skill. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I do feel like with the writing process, I feel like with a hundred years of experience between you and I, that could make me 80 and you 20. Um, I, I feel like I'm better at being a person in the world as well as being a writer. Like I can talk to people better. I'm a better friend. I'm a better son to my dad. Like I'm just, I think I'm a better version of myself because I'm, I'm getting better at it every day, just because I'm doing the stuff. Um, that's one of the pleasures of getting older, which is, which is not a, a you know, it's not a expansive list, but that, I think that's one of the things I've really enjoyed. I turned 52 a couple of days ago and like, but, and I feel like I'm not kicking against it because I feel such joy in the ease now in certain things that didn't used to be easy for me. I don't know if you've experienced that as well. Beautifully put. Yes. And you learn what you know. Historically, how have you handled when someone says, oh, I listen to your music and you remind me of so-and-so? Do you, do you go listen to so-and-so if you haven't heard them already just to hear what that person's hearing? Or how do you respond to that? I, there was a period in my development where I was reluctant to listen to anyone that someone said, oh, you remind me of. I mm, was yeah. not listen to that person because I didn't want it in my head. Um, but at this point, I, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's fine. The only thing you don't want to hear you remind me of is you remind me of my ex-boyfriend. <laughs> like, oh, I want, let's not have that conversation. <laughs> it, it, it depends on the situation. Fair enough. Yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, the answer to that one is, oh, in what way? Yes, right, right. In what way? Yeah, if someone says you remind me of, I can see your brain switching off. And I don't want to hear. I've heard that with my writing too, where I'm like, oh, I don't think I want to know because then I'll, I might start writing towards that or look into that work and and try to imitate it inadvertently or you know whatever. Hi. Hey, man, I'm, I'm thank you for taking the time and doing. It. I hope you'll come back and do this again. I'm happy to. Let's, cool. let's keep talking. I got yeah. another record in the offing. So let's, and you're going to have a book to talk about the next podcast. I'll interview you about your next book. Well, I'm up for that, David. That sounds pretty fun. Um, hey, listen, you're one of my favorite guys, and I really appreciate you taking the time and doing this. I just have marveled at your work for years. Thanks, Alex. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be a part of this. It is my absolute pleasure and a joy to talk to you, my friend, and uh, looking forward to more conversations in the future. Excellent. Cool. Take good care. Well, there you go. David Poe. What a great conversation. Lovely guy. A blast to talk to him. We'll bring him back. We'll have more episodes with David Poe. In the meantime, pick up his new album, Everyone's Got a Camera. It's phenomenal. You're going to love it. Go to davidpoe.com, find out what's happening, 
in David Poe's world. Go to my website, alexgreenonline.com, or follow me on Twitter at Embers Editor, or on Instagram at Embers Podcast, or just email me, editor at stereoembersmagazine.com. Don't forget to check out bombshellradio.com to find out what makes our radio station tick, and Stereo Embers, the podcast, is available on all podcast platforms. Go to the one that you use, subscribe. It's free, by the way. Rate and review, and tell all your friends, and even tell strangers that you want to become friends with. That might be a good icebreaker. Let's close the show. There's better ones, I know, but let's try that one. Let's close the show with a longer listen to David Poe's single, Analog. Enjoy it, and thank you as always for listening to Stereo Embers, the podcast only right here on Bombshell Radio. Analog, I miss the sound When the stars are underground But everyone is famous now Over, over and out Analog, I miss the sound When the stars are underground Before the crowd knew anything Before the world was listening All of the time Then you had to know your way back home Without a phone Now I'm part of history When the music costs money but the water was free And you could not get hold of me All of the time When secrets are secret and lies are lies And one night stands when monetized Before the robot came alive I was singing to my sister's 45 Stars are underground, and everyone is famous now. Over, analog, I miss the band when the drums are played by hand. When the man was just a man, damn it, I miss the sound. I miss the sun